This morning we're going to be reading from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they answered, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, great to be with you. You're going to want to hold your Bibles open here to Matthew 19. We're going to circle back there in just a minute, try to cover the first 12 verses or so, then we'll wrap up this chapter next week. But let me set the stage a little bit of what we're going to be looking at this morning this way. A few weeks ago, Jennifer and I were on vacation together. Now, if you are new to our church, it's important that you know Jennifer is my wife. That's an important detail for you to know. We were on vacation together, and we were at a beach, and we were coming down the evening, and the sun was setting, and as we walked out on the beach, there was a crowd of people who had gathered out there on the beach, and we didn't know why, so like you would do, we went to find out what was going on. And what was going on when we came up was this huge crowd of people, friends, and we're all gathered around a wedding There was a wedding taking place on the beach, and there was a young bride and a young groom and friends, and there was laughter and joy, and just, we didn't know who these people were from anybody, but we just stopped and watched, and and bypassers would just stop and watch this event that was taking place there on the beach, and I walked away from that just with this thought in my mind. I knew this text was coming up. I knew we were going to be walking through this, but even that experience there of that day reminded me of a reality When we are witnessing a wedding, we are witnessing the beginning of something holy. The divine institution of marriage. It is a holy thing 
that God has created this thing called marriage. Your Bible, for example, begins in Genesis chapter 2 with a wedding. God brings Eve to Adam and performs a wedding in the very beginning of your Bible. You go to the end of your Bible, and at the end of your Bible, there is a marriage feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb and His bride. In the middle of your Bible, there's an entire Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon, that's dedicated to the glories of marriage, all the way from courtship, all the way through lifelong faithfulness, this picture is given there in the book of Song of Solomon. Paul in Ephesians says that this thing called marriage, this leaving of a father and a mother and joining to your spouse, to your wife, says the mystery is profound. But he's saying, I, I'm saying it's a picture of the gospel of Christ and his church. Hebrews chapter 13 says it this way, let marriage be held in honor among all. We are to honor this institution divinely given by God himself called marriage. To honor marriage is to honor the God who created it and designed it. In the same note, to dishonor or distort or any attempt to redefine marriage according to the culture is to rebel against the very one who created and designed marriage. This morning we're going to talk a little bit about marriage and divorce from Jesus' perspective in Matthew 19. You say, why are we talking about that this morning? Because we're teaching through the Bible. <laughs> and we come to Matthew 19.1 and Jesus wants us to hear from the beginning his divine design as the creator for marriage. We're going to walk through that this morning, and I'm going to just start with the big truth that's going to guide us through this this morning, and I'll tell you, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to walk through these 12 verses. I'm going to go somewhat fast through these 12 verses, and then I'm going to invite a couple of my fellow elders, pastors up here with me, and we're going to talk through some implication and application of what Jesus says for our church this morning. So that's where we're headed. Hang on. Matthew chapter 19. Here's your big truth. Marriage divinely joins one man and one woman in covenant union for life. And all God's people said together, amen. Marriage divinely joins one man and one woman in covenant union. Intended for life, as God has designed it. Now, Jesus is going to wrestle with some different issues that are lobbed at him from the Pharisees who come to really try to trap him around the issue of divorce. And we're going to come up on that in just a minute. Verse 1 of chapter 19 says this, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, we're coming off of Matthew 18, where we spent all of last week, coming off of that, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. In the larger context of the Gospel of Matthew, this is really Jesus wrapping up his Galilean ministry. There around the Sea of Galilee, there around Capernaum. He's wrapping up that ministry. He's beginning his trek now to Jerusalem 
to die on the cross and rise from the dead. Significant point in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Always trying to, trying to catch Jesus in a trap, trying to trick him by something he will say. So they come to Jesus and they're trying to test him and they ask, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Jesus, what say you about this thing called divorce, which in that culture, just like our culture, was a very divisive, contentious issue? Now, in that day, really quick, there were a couple schools of rabbinic teaching around the idea of divorce. Rabbis tried to add their interpretation to what the Bible said, uh, trying to teach through the culture of the day. And there were a few rabbinic interpretations on this thing called divorce. One rabbinic view was this. A man may not divorce his wife at all under any circumstances unless adultery is present. There was another rabbinic view that basically said this. A man may divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, no-fault divorce, if you will. And in the Mishnah, it was written by rabbis, it goes on to say, even if she spoils a dish, even if she burns the bread. Wow. Point is, for any reason at all. So there's these schools of thought, and they come to Jesus trying to trick him and trying to catch him in the middle. It was a contentious issue in their day, and let me just stop here for a minute and recognize it's a contentious issue in our day. Matthew 19 brings us to the issue of marriage and divorce, and here's what I want you to know this morning. When we talk in just a minute as our elders, when I'm trying to walk through this text, I'm really trying to walk through this as a church with two things in mind. Number one, compassion. I realize, and I want you to realize, every person in this room has been impacted in one way or another by divorce. I know there are many in this room who you bear some heavy scars from the scourge of divorce. We know that. So we walk through this. We want to walk through it with great compassion. And at the same time, we want to walk through it with biblical confrontation, which means all of us in some way have been conformed in our thinking to the cultural view of divorce rather than the biblical understanding of divorce. So what we want to do this morning is lay our understanding before the Lord and before His Word. I'll say it this way. We're calling one another to the Word of God and what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. Just as we cannot be conformed to the world's view of sexuality and gender and all the issues related to the LGBTQ distortion. We cannot be conformed to that at all. In the same way, neither can we view marriage and divorce in any other way other than God's Word. Amen? I'm going to walk you through the Scripture and then we're going to talk a little bit as elders. Jesus continues on. So he 
deals with the issue that's lobbed at him in the same way we should deal with the issue, he goes back to the scriptures. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? (laughs) That's a jab at the Pharisees, by the way. Have you not read the book? Have you not read the scriptures? That he, God, who created them... From the beginning, made them male and female. What an important verse in your Bible. That God in his divine design made male and female distinct from one another. God made them male and female in his image for his glory. How profound. Jesus returns to the way stated in the word of God, verse 5, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Now he's quoting Genesis 2 here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. The two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, So, Jesus says, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now maybe you've heard that at a wedding or two, but you had no idea. That's from the lips of Jesus. What God joins together, let no man separate. Now let me give you a few big ideas that are going to roll out of these verses, and then we'll continue on with the rest of this passage. I'll give you two or three here, and we'll give you two or three more in a minute. First big idea is this. Marriage originates with God. God created, designed, originated this thing called marriage. Jesus views marriage, Jesus' view of marriage goes all the way back to creation itself. Marriage, therefore, is not, and this is huge in our day, a cultural construct developed over time by humanity. Rather, a divine institution created by God and woven into the very fabric of creation itself. This thing called marriage. Encyclopedia Britannica, which is not necessarily the best place to go for your theological underpinnings, but Encyclopedia Britannica says this, some form of marriage has been found to exist in all human societies, past and present. Some form of marriage. How is that so? It's woven into the very fabric of creation by the divine creator himself. Marriage originates with God. Secondly, Marriage is overseen by God. Marriage is overseen by God. When a couple stands before one another and stands before an assembly and stands before God and they pronounce, they exchange the vows and they pledge their lives to one another in covenant union, Scripture indicates it is God who joins that couple in marriage. He says it here, verse 6, So they are no longer two but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now listen, this is hugely important for us. This teaches us that marriage is not merely a human agreement 
All right, you know what? I give 50, 50, I give 50, you give 50, we're in this together. If it works out, we'll stay together. If not, no. I'm giving my entire life to you 100%. God is joining this union together. This is not a contract. This is not a human agreement. Rather, this is a divine union overseen and sealed by God himself. God oversees marriage. Thirdly, marriage unites two individuals into one. You've got to understand the oneness dynamic here that Jesus teaches, that he takes from Genesis. It unites two individuals into one. So the two are no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, verse 6. From the moment of marriage, the husband and wife are united in a mysterious way in which two singles or two individuals become one. There's a oneness. There's a physical aspect to this. Man and woman following the exchange of vows consummate the marriage physically. We call it the honeymoon, the sweet month where the marriage is consummated, this physical oneness. There's a familial aspect. The scripture says they will leave father and mother, meaning marriage begins a new primary loyalty is established to one another. Quick side note, honor father and mother, care for father and mother, love father and mother. But when marriage begins, you have a new loyalty to one another. The priority human relationship in your life begins to be one another, husband and wife. There's a familial priority to this. And thirdly, there's a spiritual aspect. God joins husband and wife. Every wedding I get to officiate usually ends with me saying something like this. All right, I'll, I'll look at this new husband and new wife and say this reality that is now true from scripture you are no longer two independent persons but one God has joined you together and that truth listen we know this that truth becomes true positionally the moment the vows the covenant is entered into but we spend the rest of our lives learning how to live that out practically amen we are woefully selfish people you're one. God has joined husband and wife as one. So Jesus comes back to the charge from the Pharisees quickly with this. All of these come back to our big truth that marriage divinely joins one man and one woman in covenant union for life. Now, Pharisees are not really content with that. See, the Pharisees in their selfishness want to find a loophole in what the Scripture says about covenant marriage. So they come back to Jesus in verse 7 and they said to him, All right, Jesus, I, we hear what you say. Yeah, but, Jesus, why then did Moses command, if you write in your Bible, circle that word command because you're going to see Jesus contradict that in verse 8 they say why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away the Pharisees come back and they're referring to Deuteronomy 24 
to a rare allowance given by God through Moses, primarily, by the way, given to protect women from injustice and exploitation. They come back and hold that out, a rare loophole that was intended to be a rare exception, and they want to hold it out as normative. We just give our spouses, give our wives a certificate of divorce. That's what Moses said. Is that not the way it's supposed to be? In their efforts to support their position of no-fault divorce, if you will, they take what was a rare exception, an allowance given by God, and present it as the norm. Jesus comes back to, thinking of it this way, he comes back to set right their wrong interpretation. Verse 8, he says, but Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, allowed you to divorce your wives, but, but, from the beginning it was not so. All right, Jesus, what do you do with this? Help, help us understand this. All right, so when Jesus comes back, he says, you need to understand a right interpretation of what you're trying to pull out of Deut- Deuteronomy is this, because of the hardness of your heart. Moses gave an allowance. What does that mean? The idea of hardness of heart here seems to be a way of God mercifully recognizing the reality and presence of sin in the community that twists and distorts the divine design of marriage. The hardness of heart seems to indicate the presence of sin in the community meant that some marriages would be seriously defiled and deeply damaged. And God, therefore, mercifully permitted divorce in rare instances as a solution of a deeply flawed and marred marriage, a rare exception. The Pharisees, again, wanting to find a loophole, hold that out to be the norm. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. He says, but from the beginning, it was not so. Never God's intent. What Moses said was never intended to lower the lifelong nature of covenant marriage or to justify the self-centered, no-fault divorce mentality of that day, but as a rare allowance because of the very real presence of sin. The tearing apart of what God joins in covenant marriage was never God's intention. Faithfulness. And it's interesting, remember, Jesus is giving this teaching in the context of chapter 18 and 19 of how we as the covenant community are to relate to one another. We, the redeemed community, so take it this way. Faithfulness in God's redeemed community, us today, is a high scriptural view of covenant marriage in our own marriages and calling others to the same high view of covenant marriage as God has intended it. We are to faithfully together encourage and spur one another on to pursue faithfulness together lifelong. We are to encourage, by the way, to pursue joy-filled marriages as God intended it. We are to seek and to bear one another's burdens. Now, this is huge. We are to seek and bear one another's burdens, enabling us to faithfully endure When the daily reality of the marriage does not align with God's good design. Meaning, it's a tough, messy, hard marriage. And by leaning into the covenant community, we are to walk with one another and help and enable one another to endure, even when it's maybe not as God designed it to be. 
Jesus comes back in verse 9. He's going to give you his view of divorce in response to what the Pharisees have to say here. Verse 9 is hugely important in our understanding. Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another commits adultery. Jesus is very clear on his view of divorce and even remarriage here. And what I want to do quickly, and then we're going to uh, take a little break, sing a song together, and then we're going to have our elder conversation. Let me give you a few more big ideas that I think flow right out of verse 9. Hugely important verse for us in Jesus' understanding of divorce. Big idea number one is this one, divorce on the grounds of immorality, is permitted. Permitted. The word immorality here is key for us understanding this. It's the word porneia, which could be used in reference to a multitude and kinds of sexual sin. However, it is my understanding that in this context, the implication is the one flesh nature of the marriage union. The picture seems to be discussing and pointing to when a spouse violates that one flesh union. Seems to be making reference to adultery when... When one spouse sexually unites their body to someone other than their spouse. Jesus says in those cases. When adultery is present. Divorce is permitted. Now. Say how can that be? Hold with me here. You need to understand the reason he says this. And I'm going to come back and circle around. So don't check out on me yet. Is because adultery grievously corrupts the one flesh union of marriage. Deuteronomy 22.2 says, If a man is found lying with his wife and another woman, both of them shall die. In the civil structure of Israel as a nation, it was punishable by capital punishment, the act of adultery. Proverbs says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He, destroy, he does it and destroys himself. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Marriage or adultery so damages the marital union. In some cases, Jesus says that divorce as a result is permissible. He's to say that in verse 9. Some want to ask, what about the unbelieving spouse situation when an unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage, making reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As the gospel advanced into the pioneer area of 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to add to this another permission, not a command at all, but a permission for divorce. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 13, and then 15, if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, but if the unbelieving partner separates, leaves, abandons, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Translation, 
Seems to be two unbelieving spouses. One comes to know Christ. Over time, the unbeliever spouse does not come to know Christ. Once out of the marriage, leaves. Paul says, you are under no obligation. You can allow that spouse to leave. You do not initiate it, but you can allow that spouse to leave. God is calling you to peace. Quick note. Some ask here, does this speak to an abusive situation in the home where one of the spouses is physically abused? There's an abusive situation. And I, my best understanding of this is it does not speak to this directly. We lack a specific text that deals with that issue directly or a text that addresses that as an exception. However, it seems the spirit of Deuteronomy 24 even is the protection of the wife from exploitation. So I'll just say this. Let me just say, if you find yourself in an abusive situation, the counsel of your elders is to pursue safety, separate if you must, run to the body of Christ. Find help in those times. Jesus seems to indicate here on divorce, divorce on the grounds of immorality is permitted. Now, let me come back and give you a second big idea quickly. Divorce on the grounds of immorality is not commanded. Never commands it. In other words, I think it's hugely important for us to know, and I say this as a pastor in 25 years of ministry who have sat eye to eye with couples who have wrestled through the scourge of immorality, and I have saw, I've seen God redeem that marriage and that couple walk on in faithfulness. So even though there is a permission when there is adultery present, it's never commanded. Gross sin against the covenant does not demand the breaking of the covenant. I want us to be clear on that. The pattern in the Old Testament is that when Israel is presented as the bride, God's bride, who walks in immense unfaithfulness to their God, and yet God extends covenant faithfulness to his adulterous bride, Israel, over and over as a picture of his faithfulness to the covenant. So even though divorce on the grounds of immorality may be permitted, it is never commanded. Now, let me give you two more big ideas, and these are sticky. And I know this whole topic is a little bit weighty. We want it to be that. Let me give you two more big ideas out of this. Remarriage, therefore, may follow the death of a spouse or a scripturally permitted divorce. Jesus seems to indicate that here. If the exception of sexual immorality has taken place, then the subsequent remarriage does not constitute adultery. However, fourth big idea is this, and we'll talk about this a little bit in our elder conversation in just a minute. Remarriage otherwise begins in adultery. And Jesus seems to indicate that here. He says, and I say to you, verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So take out the clause, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Let me make this statement. When a marriage is dissolved for reasons not permitted by Scripture, Jesus indicates that any marriage that follows is still a marriage, but it has begun in adultery. You say, what are we to do? Again, we'll talk more about this in just a minute, but here's what encouragement of your elders is this confess own it 
acknowledge. First John 1 John 1.9 applies. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Call it what God calls it. Receive the forgiveness and grace that are there. Don't deny it. Don't hide from it. Face it with what is going to be awkward conversations, but own it before the Lord. That marriage is to continue. Any idea of breaking that marriage off would be another sin. The marriage continues, but own how that marriage began and continue on in the grace of God and honor God with that marriage. Take you back to your big truth. Marriage is divinely joins one man and one woman in covenant union for life. Jesus makes that crystal clear here in these verses. And last truth I want you to see. We'll take it from verse 10 through 13. I'll read through these quickly. So the disciples, they sense the weight of what Jesus is teaching. They sense the weight of the covenant as God has intended it. They come back, verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better, it is better not to marry. In a classic overstatement, they come back and the disciples react. They say, verse 11, Jesus said, but not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. One more big idea that will come out of this. I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. We're going to go into a time of song and then enter into our elder conversation. But here's another idea that flows out of this that Jesus wants us to hear. It's vitally important in this. It's this. Singleness for the sake of the kingdom is a worthy choice for some. For some. Not all. For some. Jesus indicates there are some here who have given their life to chastity, a life of chastity, who will not pursue marriage. They have, before the Lord, chosen singleness and the purity of that single life so that they can give themselves completely to advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God. And Jesus indicates here that is a worthy choice for some, not all. Marriage divinely joins one man and one woman in covenant union for life. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Pray with me for just a minute. Lord, I acknowledge with my brothers and sisters here, this is a heavy text, especially in the culture in which we live. I know these passages and these truths and these big ideas are heard in different ways by different people in the room, Lord. But I ask you, Holy Spirit, to take this truth and press it into our lives and call us to the rightful steps of action. In obedience, confession, repentance, compassion. Lord, as your redeemed community, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.